there are at least two ways to see the Messiah's presence in the Old Testament. The chief would be the Lord's messenger. Dr. Reed Lessing, co-author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. The second way we see the presence of Jesus in the Old Testament would be through God's glory. Learn more about the Messianic Message at issuesetc.org. Stanza three of the hymn, Come Down, O Love Divine, let holy charity mine outward vesture be, and lowliness become mine inner clothing, true lowliness of heart which takes the humbler part, and o'er its own shortcomings weeps with loathing. That'll be the hymn of the day for this coming Sunday, a Sunday that will feature the famous parable of the unforgiving servant and propers for that Sunday that focus on judgment and the forgiveness of sins. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Monday afternoon, September the 11th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer. Then Dr. Ken Sherb joins us for part two of our series on evangelism. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. It's great to be here, Todd. You say that this coming Sunday is all about judgment and forgiveness. What do you mean by that? Well, we're coming off last week in Matthew 18, which you remember was about rescuing people from destructive sin, the Lord's great concern for children, not his concern for how great people think they are. So rather than leading them into temptation, in fact, we want to do everything we possibly can to restore the brother in Christ who has fallen into some sin, to see it through to forgiveness. And we have the giving of the keys there in Matthew 18. Now today we turn to a, a re-emphasis on that forgiveness, but especially its limitless dimension in Christ Jesus, with Peter coming to Jesus and asking that famous question, how many times should I forgive my brother? As many as seven. And the parable that Jesus tells that contrasts a forgiving nature and readiness to forgive with retribution and counting and all of this kind of mathematical calculation that the sinful heart has. So we're going to talk both about judgment and forgiveness. We're going to talk about that judgment before God and before each other, and how these are, in fact, to be connected with each other. Talk a little bit about the gospel reading, that unforgiving servant, and how all this goes together before we get into those propers. Sure. I think it'll be helpful today just to hear and to have in our minds what are the three readings, because they're they're quite familiar to us. First is the gospel, and that's the parable of the unforgiving servant in response to Peter's question, how many times should I forgive my brother? 
The Old Testament is well known to us. This is the great moment in the Joseph saga when finally the brothers come and are nervous that he will condemn them after their father dies. And of course, they come looking for forgiveness, although a little bit sketchy in the way they present it. And Joseph says that he is not going to stand in the place of God. An interesting connecting point. The epistle might not be as familiar, this section from Romans 15, but we know the subject matter, which is this question of food sacrificed to idols and the weaker brother and how we ought to care for one another so as not to judge other people for these indifferent or neither commanded nor forbidden by God matters. So we're going to look at that and see that it's not our place to judge our fellow Christians, but to recognize that we all are standing before the same master, God himself. So how do these things all connect? I actually think the intro, Todd, will be very helpful in seeing how they connect as we look at this text. So let's get into the intro at Psalm 143. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. That's verse 9. Then we loop back to verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. So there's an obvious connection here with the pleas for mercy, which we'll hear from both the forgiving and the unforgiving servant. But likewise, that last phrase before the Gloria Patri, that no one can stand before God's judgment and live. Very similar to what is said in Psalm 130, which might be more familiar to us. In other words, it has to be mercy undeserved kindness from our Lord, not our just deserts. Because if we are asking for justice, if we're asking for what we have earned and deserve, nobody is possibly going to get out of this alive. But I think there's an important part that we shouldn't miss in verse 1 as well. In addition to pleading to him for mercy, uh, the psalmist pleads that he would answer in his faithfulness, which might make great sense that the Lord is trustworthy to deliver his mercy, and he never forgets his promises when once he has promised mercy, but also in his righteousness. And that's a word that we might not expect to hear connected with forgiveness. When we think of righteousness, maybe we almost always equate that with righteous judgment or righteous anger, this retributive sense of righteousness that is out to make justice where injustice has happened, usually at the expense of the sinner, which would be our destruction. Righteousness here, though, is what is being pleaded by the sinner, because the righteousness often in the Old Testament, not exclusively, but probably more than the alternative, righteousness is that in God which arises for our salvation, for our deliverance, that in his righteousness he redeems us, he saves us, he rescues us, he arises for our help. And of course, this is the righteousness that Christ wins by his death and resurrection, this perfect righteousness that is bestowed on us by his word, that is given in exchange for our sins through faith in his promises. So that really does lead us then back to the antiphon, and to ask the question, who are the enemies then that we are seeking to be delivered from? When we think of forgiveness, we almost always think of that 
as ourselves, our own sins that we need to be rescued from the consequences that they deserved. And yet we see that the psalmist is praying first, as we have it in our intro at first, for rescue from the enemies, which then leads him to burst into all of this question of forgiveness. Now, maybe that's a misaligning of the scriptures and a jumbling up of the psalm, but actually I think it works quite well. You'll see this as a common thread in the Psalter, that when David or the psalmist is facing enemies who are sinning against him, he often prays for mercy and forgiveness for himself to God at the same time. It's those who bear great guilt that often are drawn with that fear of the enemy and that cry for rescue to draw, to confess their own sins and to beseech the Lord's mercy on where they have sinned as well. At first, that seems wrong, but I really want us to see that it's not. I think the common understanding that we have today is, for instance, those who have been abused, those who have been sinned against. There's a real nervousness that they're going to shift the guilt, which is not their own. They haven't done something wrong, and yet they feel that they've been dirtied, that they've been attacked, that they've been injured by this sin that's been done against them. And there's a a real nervousness that the guilt will be shifted to them, which often tempts us to say forgiveness really has nothing to say to such a person who has been sinned against. But I think this psalm is very helpful in seeing how that's not the case at all. Actually, you need to stand, if you're standing against enemies, in order to stand, you need to do it with a clean conscience. Otherwise, they'll get the better of you every time. There's many psalms that speak to this directly. And also that we should recognize the absolution, the forgiveness of sins, which is accomplished by Christ Jesus, by his blood. This absolution is a salve for those who are sinned against also. And the reason for that is our standing before the Lord, how are we righteous and right in his sight, is not in fact by anything that others have done or by what we have done, but by what Christ Jesus, what God himself alone has done for our salvation. That's the righteousness we're pleading, is it not? Therefore, it's essential that we have justification clear. It's essential that we hear and believe the absolution, the forgiveness of our sins for Christ's sake, especially if we are one who has been sinned against or maybe still are being sinned against, so that we can be clear from whom our identity really comes. Who is it who gets to have say over who we are, or whether we're clean or unclean, dirty and ruined, or in fact beloved? Well, that's God himself who speaks it in his word of forgiveness. And I do think this question of where does our identity come from? How do we know that we stand confidently, whether before our neighbor or before God? That all depends on our recognition that we stand before the Lord. And I think we see in that all of our readings today, Joseph in his place, everything that's said about not judging our neighbors in the Romans passage today, as well as, of course, the forgiveness of sins that we have from God, which is the only thing that can lead us to be uh, profligate and open and liberal in our forgiving of our neighbors as well. How does the collect read? O God, our refuge and strength, the author of all godliness, hear the devout prayers of your church, especially in times of persecution, and grant that what we ask in faith we may obtain 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. This collect comes from the historic Trinity 22, the 22nd Sunday after Trinity, where this very same gospel reading of the unforgiving steward is the reading. Now, what's interesting is the collect mentions persecution in particular, which definitely has a connection in the epistle for that historic Trinity 22 Sunday. doesn't have such a great connection in our readings today, unless maybe you want to include that intro that we just read where the antiphon is deliverance from our enemies. Nevertheless, we have the phrase that God is our refuge and our strength drawn elsewhere in the Psalms, especially Psalm 46, from which we get a mighty fortress. We see that he is the one who works all godliness, all good piety, and all good works, and all, we might say, righteous deeds as well. So we see that our strength comes from him, and we ask that he would hear our prayers, especially those who are under duress from persecution and grant that whatever we ask in faith, we may obtain. That phrase is very fruitful to realize that, of course, our relationship to our Father is not one of him being a vending machine and us getting whatever we want, maybe even if we're not putting in the dollar bills. Certainly, it is not a tit-for-tat kind of relationship with the Father. Grace obliterates that sort of counting out because grace gives us something that is utterly undeserved that we certainly have not paid for and is glad to do it. Think about what we heard from Isaiah a number of weeks ago, that he urges us to come and buy food and, 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 and every nourishment without money and without price. But rather, we come to him and we ask in faith. What does faith seek from God? It seeks all of his benefits, but all of them flow to us, as we learn in the Catechism, from the forgiveness of sins, where that is here, then life and salvation and every good is also able to flourish in and around the forgiveness of sins. That's what faith seeks. Those who lack that faith, they're seeking who knows what else. They're probably seeking all the other things first and not the kingdom of God, which is realized in the forgiveness of sins. So we want to ask in faith. And then we will obtain it, much like the psalm we had a couple weeks ago that set your heart on the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So it is that when we ask for the forgiveness of sins, we obtain it from our merciful Lord. And when we ask him then for everything else under the forgiving umbrella of Christ Jesus, then we be confident that he will give it to us. He will give it to us for our good. We can be confident that our prayers are heard and not neglected by our Father in heaven. We are looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest, and we'll get into that Old Testament reading in Genesis 50, Joseph and his brothers, next. The Church's Music from the 20th Century the 17th century. The 11th century. The 8th century. The 
the 4th century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org For sinners only. You're listening to Issues Etc. The people of St. John Lutheran Church in Lake Charles, Louisiana would like to welcome you to our family of faith. Come experience forgiveness, life, and salvation through God's work in word and sacrament. If you're in the southwest Louisiana area, we would love to get to know you. Join us for divine service every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. with Bible studies and classes for youth, adults, and children at 9.15 a.m. Check us out on Facebook. St. John Lutheran Church, Lake Charles, Louisiana. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Pumpkin spice flavored everything is in the air. It's the perfect time of year to curl up with a nice warm beverage using one of Ad Crucem's mugs, featuring your favorite Lutheran symbols, Bible verses, or Christian humor. For example, Jesus' personality type is INRI. St. Paul is the patron saint of the run-on sentence. And of course, chancel culture is practiced here. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Writing of the sin and guilt offerings in the Old Testament, the authors of our Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, the Messianic Message, write this. Both finally note carefully that the sin and guilt offerings brought the worshippers God's forgiveness, so too Jesus would suffer for all sins. Many centuries later, after Moses, Isaiah would depict the Messiah as a guilt offering, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief, and when his soul has made an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That's from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, the Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. It's at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040, and ask for the Messianic Message. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary. You had mentioned this Old Testament reading from Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. Take us through that. I will. Just briefly, I want to mention the reading that the Roman Catholic Church uses for this Sunday, because it doesn't come from the Bible proper. It comes from one of the apocryphal books, Sirach, chapter 27. But I just want to read it. Probably our listeners have not heard or maybe investigated the apocryphal books that much. They always were packaged next to Lutheran Bibles as beneficial reading, even if we weren't going to draw a particular doctrine out of these. And I do think you'll find both phrases that are wholly orthodox and connected uh, with other passages in the Bible, but I think you'll hear also something that does show itself both in our Old Testament reading we're about to hear, but as well as the other passages. So here it is, Sirach 27, 30 into the beginning of chapter 28. Wrath and anger are hateful things, yet the sinner hugs them tight. The vengeful will suffer the Lord's vengeance, for he remembers their sins in detail. Forgive your neighbors in justice. Then, when you pray, your own sins will be forgiven. Could anyone nourish anger against another and expect healing from the Lord? Could anyone refuse mercy to another like himself? Can he seek pardon for his own sins? 
if one who is but flesh cherishes wrath, who will forgive his sins? Remember your last days. Set enmity aside. Remember death and decay and cease from sin. Think of the commandments. Hate not your neighbor. Remember the Most High's covenant and overlook faults. So this is laid out much like the Proverbs, much like certain Psalms, the wisdom language. But I think it's remarkable how many of these phrases are not only similar to what we find in the scriptures in general, but particularly in our Lord's words, including the very thing he teaches today, that unless you forgive from the heart, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. These things have to be brought together because very similar to how John says it, right? If we do not love our neighbor whom we have seen, how can we claim that we love God whom nobody has ever seen at all? Likewise, same thing here for the forgiveness of sins and putting away anger and being forgiving in spirit as well as in action and word. So that's uh, what the Roman Catholic Church has. Let's hear what we have, a little bit more of a story from Genesis chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So one of the natural places to look in the Old Testament for forgiveness is certainly this great moment where finally Joseph reveals himself, where it seems like Joseph has the best opportunity to get his just desserts on his wicked brothers, and he shows kindness to them. He heeds their rather subversive little request or demand even put in their father's mouth that they be forgiven. I'm not sure how repentant they are even at this point, and you see that throughout the whole Joseph saga, and yet Joseph has a forgiving, overlooking attitude. Also, they do submit themselves as servants. I suppose that's some indication of a form of contrition, although not exactly uh, that they would recognize they deserve much more. They deserve death. They are pleading for something better, very much like the prodigal son. But remember what the prodigal son's father does. He hears none of that and does not receive his son back as anything less than a son entirely by grace. It's a very interesting statement from Joseph. Am I in the place of God? I think that's worth considering for a moment. No, he is not in the place of God that he has the right, echoing what we heard from Sirach even, a right to hold unending wrath. We can't consider and cherish wrath forever. That is not our office as mortals or as human beings, as creations. God is the judge. He's the one who is supposed to deal with vengeance. So no, that's not the place that Joseph is in. Now, is he in the place of God to rule for the good of people? Yeah, he's been put in that place. At least he's been put in Pharaoh's place. 
and there is no authority, as we heard last week from Romans, except those God has established. And is he in the place of God to absolve them? That's the interesting question. Of course, he is as the one who has been sinned against. And it is frustrating, perhaps, that Joseph doesn't actually come out and say the words that both his brothers seek and that we, as Christians in the New Testament, familiar with what Jesus has taught and the great emphasis he's put on the forgiveness of sins, this loosing and this binding that we're considering in Matthew 18, I wish he'd come out and said it. What we have in its place, though, ought to be understood in this way, that he speaks comfortably to them, he comforts them, rather than to castigate them. And he speaks kindness to them. Kindness is such a weak word as we have it in English that it feels like it shouldn't be a substitute for forgiveness, absolution, the great and precious gift that the blood of the Son of God has won for us. But kindness and favor absolutely have an affinity as words. And favor is the word that we use for grace to understand that it is God's undeserved kindness, a favorable disposition that that you can't explain by pointing to something we've done to deserve it. The only thing we can say is God loves us, and I don't know it by proof of his reasoning. I know it by proof and evidence of what he's done to love me, namely the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So in this way, I, I think we shouldn't uh, minimize the word to speak kindly to them, being a speaking of the forgiveness, of a setting aside of these wrongs that have been done. No vengeance is going to be sought out on his brothers anymore. And to that, then, uh, Joseph also adds his weeping. And the statement that we're probably most familiar with that would have belonged much nicer earlier in uh, Romans, especially around chapter 8, uh, that they meant it for evil, but God has meant it for good to accomplish great things. I won't dive into the whole question of good and evil and how God makes good use of evil that he abhors and does not create. But suffice it to say, it's so easy for us to slip into a all's well that ends well or God blesses the broken road kind of theology that wants to immediately, without any penitence or thought, uh, find in wicked things God's goodness. And there's a way in which that is obviously making light of something that is quite serious. Let's not forget the beginning of Matthew 18 uh, and all of the warnings that it'd be better for you to be drowned in the sea than to lead any of God's children into temptation. Therefore, in a sense, what Joseph says here is not an encouragement for you to give God more material to work with, that you should go around being evil knowing that God can do it or act like that famous saying that a perfect world is one that we have where I love to sin and God loves to forgive. By no means, as Paul writes in Romans, but rather to recognize, as Joseph maybe singularly, or as very few do in this life, Joseph got to see how God worked it for good at the end of a very, very long section of chapters in Genesis. Not all of us get to see this by any means. Faith, though, is trusting not in what we see to get to the end of the story and then finally to understand it, but in fact to trust the promises of God and the words of God, which will be very fruitful for us when we hear the limitless forgiveness that Jesus expects from his disciples in Matthew.
The psalm is Psalm 103, the first 12 verses. We mentioned Psalm 103 uh, last week already because it's probably the most familiar forgiveness and positive emphasis psalm that we have. We hear just the first part, which is focused in on the forgiveness and the mercy. What it's omitting at the end is the contrast of God's steadfast mercy with man's frailty and short-lived nature due to sin, but also talking about God's compassion as a father. That fit very well with the prodigal son. We'll hear the forgiveness part here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In the center there, I almost think we're hearing about Joseph right before we get on to Moses, of course, that the Lord, in fact, rescues the oppressed, or even better, redeems their life from the pit. This man who's been brought out of jail, even uh, crowned as Pharaoh's right-hand man. But notice the focus is on the forgiveness of sins throughout, and especially this understanding that the Lord does not take advantage of his right as the judge to condemn, to accuse, but in fact is slow to anger and abounding in grace and mercy, just as he disclosed himself to Moses in the bush and when he hid him in the cleft of the rock and let his name pass before him. That he doesn't repay us according to our iniquities, tit for tat, but in fact has mercy at his own expense, pays for us, redeems us. And I think there's a necessary parallel that's so helpful for us in verse 3 between forgiveness and healing. Literally, the verse that parallels with itself is, he forgives your iniquity, and part two, he heals your diseases. So sometimes we want to divide these two, probably because we don't want to fall prey to the misunderstanding that the Pharisees had, for example, when they said that the blind man had sinned, uh, either him or his parents, and that's why he was stricken with blindness. That is not a necessary consequent of saying that sin and disease and suffering and death and all these things are connected. Our interest in saying that is also to say that where there is forgiveness of sins, there is life, there is renewal, there is everything else as well. So this is demonstrated probably most clearly when Jesus forgives that man's sins, the lame man, and then in order to show that, uh, that the forgiveness is the chief authority, he also heals his lameness so he can get up and take his mat and walk. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. He is director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary. And the epistle reading from Romans 14 is next.
Issues Etc. regular guests Dr. Reed Lessing and Dr. Andrew Steinman are the authors of our Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about The Messianic Message at issuesetc.org. Study the Old Testament through a Christ-centered lens with the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, The Messianic Message. Grace, Faith, Scripture, and Christ alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. We are looking forward to the 16th Sunday after Pentecost. According to the three-year lectionary, Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Sean, we come to the epistle reading, Romans 14, the first 12 verses. Yes, and I want to say this is the very last section of Romans that we're going to have this year in the three-year lectionary. The rest of the book is actually omitted from the church's use, except for just a few small portions in chapter 15 and 16. They're the ones that are talking about the end of the world. They're used during the season of Advent in year A and B. So this is kind of our farewell to Romans and the end of that series, if maybe your pastor has been preaching straight through this book. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So, judgment against the brother in matters of faith observance is close to this. All of the questions of the distinction of foods, of distinction of days, which has kind of two directions in Paul's context. One is Jews versus Gentiles, and another one is simply 
Old Testament versus New Testament, the fact that not all Christians have to become observant Jews with all of the ceremonial law too before they're allowed to have faith in Christ Jesus. In fact, it's actually not necessary anymore. So both of these stand behind there, and and maybe it's a little difficult to figure out which one he has in mind. Um, I think it's very possible that there is a Jewish-Gentile distinction here, uh, because he says the one who eats, that is probably the one who eats meat, and almost all meat available would have been somehow connected to the temples of the pagan gods, butchered there at least, but probably offered. Why not get double duty out of it? Or I suppose it's possible it even refers to the Jewish temple, which at this point would be a difficult thing for a Christian, especially a Gentile Christian, to eat from. In any case, the one who eats is a Gentile, and yet one who has been welcomed. So the point is the person who might come eating meat, who has been welcomed as a Christian, uh, shouldn't be condemned for that. The Jew, on the other hand, if he is condemned, that's wrong as well, because he will be upheld, it says. And he won't be upheld by his own works. He won't be upheld by his great observance to the law. That has all fallen away, as Paul is at pains to say in all of his letters, but rather by the gracious Lord's mercy. And that's what Peter says so well in the presence of Paul at Acts chapter 15, that Jerusalem council. I think as we look at this, it's worth noting who the weak person in faith really is and what has made them weak in Paul's way of talking. And that is, they are what I might call the more devout person, actually. They're the person who is hypersensitive to the concerns. The concern of eating meat sacrificed to idols, as Paul says elsewhere, is I don't want to be a worshiper of idols. I don't want to give the impression to others, and I don't want to have the mistake in my mind either that I am participating in the sacrifices of, well, frankly, demonic activity, as he says in 1 Corinthians. So some people then are so hypersensitive, they just have come to the point of avoiding meat altogether. So that whole question is taken away. So they don't fall back, if they're a Gentile, into what they used to believe. And so they don't enter into the dirtiness if they're already a conscientious Jewish-born Christian. Uh, So they're not weak, maybe in the sense that some of us might imagine, weak uh, because they're on the margins of the faith or on the margins of the church, weak because uh, uh, maybe they are not so pious, they're caught up in things of this world, and so they're kind of borrowing from Jesus' parable of the sower. They're one of the people who are on not-so-good soil, so we have to be extra careful with them. Now, actually, it's the opposite that Paul's speaking about. He doesn't say that we're supposed to relax the expectations of faith or of life in order to accommodate them. He says that we're not supposed to judge these things that are neither commanded nor forbidden. Instead, we ought to recognize two things. One, that both practices, if done thoughtfully, in fact, may be done to the service of God, to the thanksgiving of the Lord. And I think the bigger point is that we are servants to the same master. We're not lords over each other, as Jesus rebuked the sons of thunder. We are lords serving the master only. All of us are fellow servants of Jesus Christ, and we're answerable to him then. So none of this is about getting people off our back for talking to us, but rather it's to recognize that common master. We're all the lords, 
we're also each other's in him as well. So what we do in living or in dying is tempered of all of its selfish desire for the sake of an example to our neighbors. Maybe one other point just to mention here is that this does mean that nothing we do is free from theological consideration and connection. Rather, everything we do, however mundane, even as simple as counting days and eating, this ought to be done thoughtfully in honor of our Lord and mindful of our brothers so that it's not occasion for offense. So there is equality in the church that is mentioned here. And since this is a place where it speaks positively about it, let's point out what the equality in the church really is. The equality that we all have as Christians is that we are all judged by him. And this is definitely judgment in the sense of condemnation. At least that's what we are deserving of. Likewise, we'll have to give answer for our deeds to the same Lord who judges equally. And I think there's a connection to be made here to the gospel, that we stand before a much greater judge than even our most picky or most knowledgeable or most directive fellow Christian or fellow human. We stand before the Lord. All of us do as Christians, and he's the one that we're serving. Therefore, we're kind to those who would stand before us and next to us in the church, because if we are placed in any kind of human judgment over them, we're subordinate to the true judge, God himself, Jesus Christ. That makes us lenient in the way that he is remarkably lenient toward us. And maybe the word lenient isn't the best word to use. Rather, we should just say, we want to be merciful as our Father is merciful. Notice what Paul does not do. He does not mock the weaker brother as weak at all. He almost suggests that he's being a bit tongue-in-cheek in all of this, right? He's saying if we have to bow before the living God in the last day, if we have to face his judgment then that means the concerns of someone's conscience, like, for instance, that Jew and or Gentile who can't even bring himself to eat meat, those concerns are important. That's a concern of a conscience that knows it is living before God and does not want to go against God. That is a good thing that Paul is upholding. Uh, Now, certainly, we're shown the consistency of heart and mouth and hand in all of this. That is almost assumed what Paul explains elsewhere, especially in 1 Corinthians. And uh, it's probably worth pointing out because I think we live in an era that doesn't take lying quite in the same way that it once did. So it's our understanding that your yes should be yes and your no should be no, as Paul says elsewhere. Uh, that we're not to say one thing while we secretly believe a different thing. That's essential. What we believe in the heart, we should confess in our mouths and in our deeds. We can't be liars. We can't betray our conscience and become pretenders. Uh, so that's that's what's necessary then, uh, and the reason why Christians confess with actions or with ceremonies or with you know even distinctions of foods or reckoning of days, it's necessary. And it's necessary for them to do it with a unity between what they're acting and believing and confessing as well. So as a kid, used to do that thing, or I saw it on TV at least, that you're supposed to cross your fingers if you're telling a lie behind your back. And somehow that, I don't know, that like makes it not a lie. Or it means that it's a lie outside of you, but it's not a lie inside of you. 
none of this is Christian behavior. None of this is right. We might say something closer to home. There's a story told uh, in the Anglican Church, which went back and forth for a long time on the question of what is the Lord's Supper? Is it the true body and blood of Christ, which then, of course, deserves our adoration, not the bread, but the, the body of Christ certainly does. Uh, and ought to be treated with great reverence? Or is it simply a symbol or a, a sign of something that's happening elsewhere? Therefore, it really is just bread. In which case, to kneel down before it, to do the sorts of things that we do in a Lutheran service, like saying, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, would be totally out of place if all we're doing is having bread. There's a story told where two priests that were on opposite sides of this issue came over. The visitor was a, he didn't believe in the sacrament being the true body of Christ, but he knew it was at his friend's church, so he knelt down at the rail. And his friend said, what are you doing this on my account? Don't you dare become an idolater on my account just because you think it would please me. That's the right attitude. That's recognizing that our conscience before God is not a way to get off without answering questions, but it is something that supersedes all other human, even ceremonies at times, that we want to be honest. The purpose of all good church ceremonies is to confess honestly in action and word what is supposed to be common among us in our faith and in our hearts. But if you come across a Christian who doesn't believe that, say somebody who doesn't believe that baptism forgives sins or that the Lord's Supper truly is the body and blood of Christ, it would do us no good to have them belly up to the bar. It would do us no good to have them get an infant baptized in our church, even though they don't believe that holy baptism does any good. We want heart and mouth and hand all to be uh, speaking honestly and incongruence with one another. And this is because our consciences are before the Holy God. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, the 16th Sunday after Pentecost. We will get to the gradual inversion leading to the gospel reading of Matthew 18 next. Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. LCMS Worship invites you to attend the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music July 9th through the 12th in 2024 at Concordia University, Nebraska. The theme is Songs of Deliverance, the Psalms, and the Great Congregation. Everything you need to know is at lcms.org slash worship institute, and we're now accepting presenter proposals through September. Go to lcms.org slash worship institute, God's mission right where you are. Evangelical and Catholic. You're listening to Issues Etc. Have you ever pondered the limits of archaeology? What can it tell us? What can't it tell us? Well, Dr. David Adams takes up this topic in the September issue of The Lutheran Witness, where he discusses the fact that archaeology ultimately doesn't prove anything. It simply gives us the facts that have to be interpreted. 
To learn more, pick up your copy of The Lutheran Witness, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Memorial Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest director of worship for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. We are looking forward to Sunday morning. Sean, the gradual in the verse, if you would, leading us up to that gospel reading. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for there is no lack for those who fear him. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Here, I think the fear of the Lord comes out in our gradual that we've had for a number of weeks. The fear of the Lord is what his saints still have for him, even though he's the one who takes away all fears. He's the one who puts our sins far away from us. So we have it in connection with the power of God, that we fear his power. Certainly Joseph is mindful of that in today's Old Testament. We fear the Lord as in we seek his approval and his expectations, and we're not going to fear men more than we fear him. We're not out to please the judgment of our neighbors when our conscience is concerned. That's certainly what the epistle is getting at. But above all, fear of the Lord is never to be separated from faith, trusting in his mercy. So even in the Old Testament, the term God-fearer is used of those who worship the true God honestly. And the worship of Israel is all about proclaiming, as we heard in the psalm, the Lord who is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. Our verse then, by the way, comes from Matthew chapter 6. It's not from today's gospel reading, but it really does remind us of something we've heard earlier in Matthew's gospel that is really being expounded upon again by Jesus. So when Jesus taught the fifth petition, when he taught the whole Lord's Prayer, he singles out the fifth petition in particular to mention again, and he says this phrase, which is our verse, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Drawn from the Lord's Prayers, you know it well. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's brought back again today because it's nearly exactly what is said by Jesus at the end of today's gospel, maybe just taken from the other angle. Take us into that gospel with a few minutes left to us here. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Maybe not one of the gospel readings where this is the gospel of the Lord sounds like the right response at the end, but it's a well-known and important expounding on what the Lord's Prayer means in its fifth petition. How many times should I forgive? Peter says something rather generous. Seven is a godly and perfect number, so that seems right. But the Lord says, nope, of perfection, seven times seven or 77 times is what is required. And the parable illustrates the limitlessness, the, the lack of counting, that it's not a matter of a certain number of times. And then once you reach number five, I'm sorry, now I can't forgive you anymore. No, the steadfast, right? Enduring mercy of God in our current translation of that word is to be emphasized here. So we look at this an interesting parable, right? Does the first servant actually repent? He, he wants patience so he can achieve and buy himself out of this. It's not the greatest repentance, kind of like those brothers of Joseph. Maybe at best the king recognizes a good intention in him, but far more likely is simply the king recognizes the impossibility of such a statement. This is a man who cannot buy his way out of this, even if he did work his whole life. And the king's response is not to throw him in jail anyway, but to have utter mercy and absolve it all, strike the whole debt clean. In contrast to the second servant, whose hundred denarii is a lot of money, but something that could be worked off, if the other servant were inclined to give him patience, he probably could pay it off even. Even so, given especially what just happened, we already know how this parable ought to end how this is the natural response to forgive as he had been forgiven. And we see that he doesn't do that. More than just having a lack of grace, he seems to have a desire to punish him. He throws him right in jail, get it going. You can consider all the judgment in our epistle that we've already heard. By the time we get to the Lord's conclusion, I don't think it's a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise, given the Lord has already taught about this when he taught the Lord's Prayer. But it's necessary to see that just as... No one who has been forgiven can possibly go around and be stingy. That is an utter denial of what you've received. Likewise, the power to forgive others comes from the forgiveness of sins, the recognition, the gratitude for what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in the first place. So if you want to uh, not fall under the condemnation of our Lord in today's gospel, delight in his forgiveness you will learn also how to forgive your neighbor as well. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Sean, thank you very much. You're welcome, Todd. 
In Hour 2 of Issues Etc. on this Monday, September 11th, Part 2 of our series on evangelism with Dr. Ken Sherb. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay tuned. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Join us September 29th at 7 p.m. for a hymn festival celebrating the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels at Good Shepherd Lutheran in Collinsville, Illinois. Hymn commentary will be provided by Pastor Will Whedon, host of the Word of the Lord Endures Forever podcast, along with organist Chris Lemker, orchestra and choir. For more information or to register to sing in the choir, visit our website withangelsandarchangels.org.